Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. We'll also be reading in Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 5. Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Please turn to Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 5. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her welfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The word of the Lord. Let's try it again. Good morning, Calvary. Good morning. It's really good to be here. Um, as um, Gerald had shared, this is a kind of an awkward Sunday, right? I mean, you had just finished up and wrapped up Christmas, and looking forward to New Year's, and then a few months later, we're going to be looking forward um, to the Lenten season as we usher in um, that time that we celebrate as Resurrection Sunday. Some call it Easter, but again, the Lord's resurrection, dying, death on the cross, and resurrection from the dead. And, um, and, so, and, and yet, here we are today, <laughs> the Sunday between all of that. And, um, and it's really exciting, and I just want to thank um, Pastor um, Gerald for the opportunity just to share from the Word um, today. Um, and um, I also want to thank um, the elders and the staff who, um, once they learned that I was going to be um, sharing from the Word, they immediately started praying. I don't know why, but they immediately started praying. <laughs> um, but I also want to thank many of you. Um, dear brothers and sisters, I know many of you, even coming in today, um, several of you have said, I've been praying for you. I've been praying for you. And I just appreciate that so, so much. It's my heart and it's my desire that um, the Holy Spirit would speak to each of our hearts today. And, and, but before we get into the Word, um, I, I, I have to ask, since this is a holiday season and, and um, um, I ran into um, Dorothy Air out there and it just struck me that there are several other people who are visiting. How many visitors do we have here with us today? Wow. That is awesome. That is awesome. That is awesome. Welcome. Welcome. Um, this is my debut sermon, and I hope that you still come back after the message, all right? And how many regular attenders do we have here and members? All right, wow. And it's our hope that you also return and maintain your membership um, as well. Uh, would you join me, and let's just go before our Father and um, in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we, we love you. There's none like you. There's none who can compare. And Father, you are holy, 
holy, holy. And your word declares that by those who come near you, we must regard you as holy. And so we humble ourselves to regard you as holy even right now. Father, we lay aside all distractions. We lay aside anything, Father, that might stand in the way of us and you this moment, this time. You also declare that in the assembly, you must be glorified. So, Father, it's with uplifted hearts and spirit that we glorify you right now, Father, just by having an attentive ear to hear what you would have for us to hear today, what you would have us to learn and what you would have us to apply. And Father, I just pray a special blessing upon each person here, especially those who came from faraway places and visiting, that they will be blessed, that they will be strengthened, that they will be encouraged, that they will be comforted in you, O Lord. And as for myself, Lord, God, I, I just pray, even as John the Baptist declared that he must decrease and you must increase. Father, I pray that even in the preaching of the word, that I would fade into the background, as it were, so that the light of your word would move forward, would shine forth, O oh Lord God, that you would speak to the people here, to their hearts, what you would have them to hear, a special message, O oh Lord God, that will touch, that will inspire and encourage, that will transform and change as well. In all of these things, Father, we just lift it up before you in the name of the authority of our Lord and Savior Jesus. Amen. Amen. So we have just finished up Christmas, and it's interesting that already we're seeing people taking the Christmas ornaments, the trees, the decorations, and it was like the day after Christmas, they began to tear it down. And um, how many of you, I want to ask that question, have started to do that already? And, and, and yet it's a process. There are several of us who went as far as Father's Day one year in keeping everything up. I hear you laughing, sister, but we were just getting ready for the next year, for the next season, getting a jump start on that. But it's interesting, as the holiday comes to an end, as Christmas in particular comes to the end, we take the ornaments, the yard ornaments, we start to package those up, set those aside. We finally work our way inside as well. We take the tree, we take all of the ornaments neatly, gently, carefully, especially heirloom items, pack it up, wrap it up, set it aside, and we work our way down the tree, eventually take down the tree, and eventually we get to the nativity scene. Somehow, somehow we sort of leave that for last, which is, I think, a good thing um, for many of us. Um, we take down the um, image that we have there for Joseph and for Mary and the, um, the whole manger seed scene. We set the Christ child image along to the side, but we wrap up the manger and we wrap up everything else. And some of us may have angels. We wrap those up as well. And some of us may even have the magis, right? The, the wise kings. And similarly, we wrap those up carefully, box them up, tuck them aside. And then we have the Christ child gently wrapping them up, putting it aside until next season, until next year where we get to do it all over again, where we get to open it up and enjoy the holiday again. And sadly, for many people, even within the church, how we treat the little Christ child is how we treat our Lord and Savior. He's here for a season. He is Manuel, God with us. For unto us a child is given. For unto us a child is born, as the song goes. And at some point in the season, we are all caught up in the celebration. But then the season ends. And when the season ends, there's a tendency, and whether we mean it intentionally or not, there's a tendency to take that child, as it were, to wrap it up, pack it away neatly until we need to call upon that thing again or until we need to call upon the person again. Now, some of us, we'll take it one step further, 
We recognize that that child is not to be packed up, not to wrapped up, and to put away. But in how we view God, we still see Him as that cuddly, warm child. He is a child. It's easy to embrace a child. A child makes no demand upon you, especially if the child is not your own, right? But it's easy to receive a child. It's easy to look into the eyes of the child, and because a child demands nothing from you, except love, really, if you're the parent, but if you're not the parent, the child doesn't even demand that. And that's the way we look at Jesus sometimes, still as the Christ child, still in an infant status. Now, some will go beyond that and say, no, he's no longer a child. He has grown. He's matured into a man. And we see him as a man only, but we don't see him as the person that God called him to be as Israel's promised Messiah and as our Lord and Savior. So it's easy to receive someone as a man because there's really not a demand that's placed upon us to simply receive someone who's a man. But what if that man is not just a man? What if that man is not just a prophet? What if that man actually is not only the son of God, but the promised king, the promised redeemer, the Lord of Lords, the king of kings? What if we were to approach him that way? It would call for a different response, wouldn't it? And so that's the question that's before us today. And as we take a look at John the Baptist and we, we take a look at the passages that are before us to get a sense of who did John proclaim. John was a forerunner of the Messiah. He was not the forerunner of a child. He was the forerunner of someone who reached a status and a person in the office for which he was called to, to be the redeemer, to be the savior of the world, to be our gift from God. So as we take a look at the passages before us, it's sort of interesting because when John the Baptist then finally came onto the scene, there's not a whole lot written in Matthew's account about his history, but there's a lot written instead in Luke's account, and there's a lot also written in the Old Testament, that the Hebrew Bible, that sort of points to this forerunner that would come before the Messiah would come. And the Jewish people at that time, when John the Baptist came, were so excited because they've been under Roman domination, Roman rule. They've been under wicked leadership among the Pharisees uh, that you could purchase a high priest, if you will, for a price. And it was the Roman government that were the ones who appointed who the priests would be, who the rulers would be. Far removed from what God had intended way back in the past. Far removed from the time when God had made a covenant with his people. But yet here the people were, and here the people were weighed down, they were depressed, they were desolated, they had no hope, they were in despair. And they were looking and eager for good news of some sort. Even though they didn't understand when Messiah would come, through their training, through all of the years, they knew that there would be a forerunner to the Messiah. They knew that when that forerunner come, then the Messiah as king of kings would come and that king of kings would subdue all the enemies of Israel and inflict judgment upon the enemies of Israel. And so that's what they're looking for and that's what they thought they saw and were hoping to see in John the Baptist. But how did the children of Israel get to where they were? How did they get to this place where instead of a nation that was flourishing again under the promises and the hands and the protection of God. Instead, they were people who were dispersed out. Such so that even for 400 years between the end of the Hebrew Bible and the book of Malachi until John the Baptist came onto the scene, there was silence. There were no prophets. 
God did not speak to the children of Israel. God, in fact, said, I divorce you. And we'll talk about, and we'll take a look at why. So how did the children get there? You sort of have to go back, way back, several centuries even earlier than that. It goes back to when Mount Sinai, God made the promise, the covenantal promise with the children of Israel. And as Moses was bringing the, the laws down, the children were already sinning. You guys, you remember that, right? The Cecil D. DeMille movie, right? We, we saw that. But then it continued beyond that. It continued, well, continually they were sinning. They were finally, God brought them to the brinks of the Jordan to go over and spy again in this land that ran with milk and honey to give a report, an honest report, a good report. But instead... 10 out of the 12 tribal leaders, spies who went in, came back and gave a negative report. And what they were basically saying is that we know what you said, God, concerning us. We know the covenant that you've given to us, but we don't believe you. We don't trust in you. So we're going to not obey you to go over and to take possession of the land that you've given us that ran with milk and honey. And that generation was doomed for 40 years. One day, one year for every day, that they went and they spied out on the land. And in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, it talks about that people, that generation, having a wicked heart of unbelief. That's how it was described in the children of Israel. Well, then it got worse because then they wanted a king. And then God had actually foretold that there would be a king, but they didn't just want a king. They wanted a king like other nations. They were beginning to look at the world about them. The very people that God says, don't be like these people, they said, no, we want a king like these people. And as a result, God felt that he was rejected. He gave them a king. That's when we had Saul, followed by David, followed by Solomon. And then after Solomon, the kingdom was ripped apart into two, between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, between Israel and Judah. And each of the kings were wicked beyond measure, with the exception of very, very few. In fact, virtually all of the kings of Israel were wicked beyond measure. And in the kingdom of Judah, most of them tried to do well. They try to follow after God's own heart, but there's one thing they couldn't put out of their midst, and that was idolatry. They could not remove idolatry from their midst. They could not remove a heart in their heart that was leaning towards pagan idolatry instead of towards the God who brought them out of Egypt. And so as this progressed, it got worse. If you think it could even get worse, God rebuked them severely because of what they were doing, so much so that they say, God said, I'm going I'm I'm to have a foreign power come and dispossess you of your own land. And this is what happened with Israel when the Assyrians came and took them into captivity. And 100 plus years, about 150 years later, the same thing happened to Judah where the Babylonian empire came and took Judah and dispossessed them. Because blood and depravity has so polluted the land and a lot of the covenant were land covenants that God made with the children of Israel that he had to cleanse the land of even the very people that he brought into the land. And during that period, we have Isaiah, who was a prophet, before the dispossession of the land. And then during the time of the dispossession of the land, you had Jeremiah. And then after that, during the actual um, foreign occupation as well as foreign um, um, inhabitation in, in Babylonia, you had Ezekiel. You had these great prophets that God used, and throughout all these hundreds of years, he was still calling out to his children, still calling out to his people, repent, turn back, turn around, repent. And even after he says, I divorce you, he later changes his mind and said, but I will not forget my promises to your father, Abraham. I will not forget my promise to David, that there will always be a lineage in David's root, just as the song that we just sang. 
So God had this amazing compassion, this amazing love for the people who kept rejecting him. And the rejection was not just simply, God, I'm not interested in following you. No, the rejection took on the form where they were taking the things of their own hands and worshiping those things. They were taking the um, blessings that they may have had in terms of crop and in terms of livestock and everything, and instead of attributing it to God, they began to attribute it to the gods that were being worshipped by the pagans in their land. They began to go beyond that. In the high places, they began to burn incense. They would go to their, you know, to their worship, but then after their worship in the high places, they would have places of um, um, incense where they took the very things of God and offered it up to the things that were to the pagan gods. It was incensing God. Jealousy, rage, zealousness was boiling over in Abba, in our God. And it got to the point where you take a look at the accounts of this. I would invite you to take a look at 2 Kings chapter 17, where it accounts for all of the atrocities that they did. And those included not only the worship of the foreign deities, but also taking their own children, who are part of God's inheritance, birthed through them as part of the lineage of Abraham and offering of the children to be burned as an offering, a burnt offering to the foreign gods. This is what incensed God to the point where he said, I have to discipline you, I've got to cleanse the land, and I'm going to send a foreign power to take you and dispossess you of the very promise that I gave you. And this is what has happened. This was the backstop. And yet, Isaiah chapter 1 through 39 speaks of that. And it ends with Hezekiah, where he gave Hezekiah a second chance, and then at the end, you hear in, uh, in Isaiah 39 how Hezekiah shared his wealth, not shared, but revealed his wealth to foreign dignitaries. Something that God had blessed him with, but he was boasting in what he had. And God told him that your kingdom is going to be taken from you, but not during your lifetime. Later on, and then 150 years later, the Babylonian Empire came, besieged the city, put up ramparts, such that around the walls, nobody could come out of Jerusalem, come out of the city without being killed, and it cut off the food supply, it cut off the water supply. And so here they are in Jerusalem, they're unable then um, to feed themselves, to take care of themselves, and finally they gave up. And it was during this time, you may recall the prophet Jeremiah was saying, don't fight against the Babylonian. God has a purpose in, in, in using the Babylonians. In fact, even said Nebuchadnezzar is a servant of God, a minister of God, to accomplish his purpose. And so in all of these things, eventually, eventually, they were hauled off into captivity, and it was during this period of tremendous mourning for over 400 years, as well, of not hearing a word from God until John the Baptist. John the Baptist enters the scene, and it starts with in Isaiah 40, the first verse in Isaiah 40 says, comfort, oh comfort my people, says your God. God knew the hurt of his people. It pained him to have to judge his people, but he knew the hurts of his people, and even though he had dispossessed himself and them of him, removing them, there was still a tender spot in his heart, despite the hundreds of years. Now I want to pause for a moment here. Many of you have found yourself in situations in your life, decisions, bad decisions, regrets, things that you wish you could take back, things you wish you could undo, things that you even wonder, can God even forgive me of those things? Can God even restore me of those things? Because I really messed up. When you take a look at how God dealt with the children of Israel for hundreds of years, despite all of those things, um, I, I would probably be fair to say that none of you are offering up your children up to foreign gods, right? In other words, 
Whatever it is you find yourself in, wherever you find yourself having to work with, God is more than able. His love is more than greater than you can ever imagine. Even as he demonstrated towards the children of Israel, he is present and able to demonstrate it towards you. Amen? So, the words are comfort, O oh, comfort my people. Say, your God, speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare, in other words, her servitude, her years of service um, have um, ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all of her sin. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. It's sort of interesting that as you take a look at the word comfort, the word comfort normally as we think about it means to console to help alleviate, to bring something that's going to lift up the condition of where the person is. And, and that is true. But in that word, comfort, in the Hebrew, has a couple different meanings. The majority of the meaning is exactly what I just described. But at about 40% of the time, and that 40% is if you take a look at the number of times the word comfort is used and how many times is it used um, in, in the sense that I just mentioned and how many times in this other sense I'm about to mention, is that comfort also has embedded in its meaning a sense of to repent. Same word, to comfort and to repent. And I believe what the Lord is saying to his people, even in the use of this word, is that you will find your comfort in me if you turn away from yourself and if you turn away from the other things and you return to me. That's where the comfort is. It's not separate. It's two sides of that same coin. And it's always so easy to look at only one side of that coin, but ignore the other side of that coin. And this is what was going on here. So in the midst of their hundreds of years of being dispossessed from their land to the present time for the Jews, where now John the Baptist is on the scene, they were looking for hope. They were looking for something to give meaning to their lives, to reaffirm them as a people. They lost everything. But the one thing they hadn't lost yet, the one thing they couldn't get rid of or give up yet was hope. So when John came onto the scene, he provided hope. And it created a national revival, literally a national revival. As you take a look at it in Matthew chapter 3, it talks about in verse 5, then Jerusalem was going out to him and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan. It started out perhaps as a small movement in terms of repent because the kingdom of God is at hand, but it spread like wildfire. Small groups, villages, cities, region. There was a mad press. There was a mad rush to grasp hold of a piece of this kingdom of heaven that John the Baptist was talking about. And what's interesting, when you think about this, this mass group of people coming, it's very, very interesting to know that as they came, John the Baptist baptized them. That was unusual, very unusual. Baptism itself was not unusual among the Jewish culture, but I mean baptism in the form of ceremonial ablution, ceremonial washings. You have certain things that um, you want to dedicate, and so you go through the process of sprinkling, you go through some other processes or what have you. It was a very common thing. What was not common was a type of baptism. In fact, John the Baptist in the original Greek would be John the Immerser, John the Submerger. People were coming in troves to be baptized in the river, to be submerged into the river. And it says in this next verse here that they were confessing their sins as they were being baptized. Meaning that they wanted some truth and reality in a revival experience, being able to cling on to that hope of this promised kingdom and also the promised Messiah that would come. 
And in that, it was different from anything they've experienced before. Because historically, whenever the nation of Israel would confess their sins, it was usually typically once a year on the Day of Atonement, and it was a national confession of national guilt before God. And sacrifices would be offered. This is the first time where the individual Israelites were called to a personal baptism, a personal repentance, a personal turning away and a turning to as unto God. That was unheard of. It was revolutionary. And we continue in that vein even today, don't we, when we baptize someone. Because see, for John the Baptist, you're not repentant or saved because you happen to belong to one particular religious group or another religious group. And you see the evidence of that when you take a look at the next verse or two. Um, this is verse 8 and 9. 7, 8, and 9 in chapter 3 of, of uh, Matthew's gospel, what you see are Sadducees and Pharisees coming also to be baptized. And immediately, he calls them out. And he not only calls them out, he even goes on to say um, in verse 8, therefore bring forth fruits of righteousness in keeping with repentance, and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. In other words, he's saying, don't even think of it. When he says, do not suppose to say it, he says, don't even presume to say that you are worthy of coming to be baptized because by virtue of your having your father Abraham as someone that you could claim to. That will not save you. Being here at Calvary, you could attend for years. That will not save you. Any denomination they may be part of, whether Baptist, Catholic, whatever, just being affiliated with that, no more, no greater than with the Sadducees and the Pharisees, that will not save you. What will save is a heart that's turned away from the things that are displeasing to God, but importantly, and this is the other side of the coin, the heart that is turned into and trusting in Messiah, in Jesus. And as demonstrated here, it's an individual decision. It's not a groupthink decision. It's not a collective decision. It's an individual decision. It's an individual acknowledgement that I am in need of redemption. It's an individual acknowledgement that there's none who can save other than the Lord God. It's an individual acknowledgement that Christ has come in the flesh. Christ has been raised from the dead. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, but he will come again. And he is Lord, and I receive that unto myself. This was the part that John the Baptist was trying to prepare the children of Israel for. When it says, prepare ye the way of the Lord, the word also may be explained as, make ready the way of the Lord. And the making ready of the way of the Lord was not so much the making ready of the, the, the literal um, um, roads and the fields and what have you. It was metaphor. It was a picture. It's a readiness of the heart. And the word for make ready is not simply to prepare like you're preparing dinner or some other things. You're preparing to go on a trip, and so you, you follow, um, do some due diligence, you do some research, you figure out the best path and whatever you go. No, make ready in the Hebrew means to be established, to be fixed. In other words, establish and fix the heart of these people so that they can be prepared to receive the coming king. That is the king's highway. The king's highway is not just a pathway where the king would trans, you know, cover and get to the, uh, a particular subject. No, it was for the subjects themselves to prepare for receipt of the king. Even to this day, in many foreign countries, there's an announcement that would go out, the king is coming, the king is coming. And every village, each person taking responsibility, were clear the path that was their responsibility in order to properly receive the king. That was clearing the path for the king's highway. 
And this is what John the Baptist was doing here as he was pronouncing, going before the Lord Jesus the King. And so if you could appreciate what John's role is, then you can also better appreciate who Jesus is. Because he went before Jesus and in that, declaring Jesus as the Messiah that was promised to the children of Israel. But the question is, you could repent and turn away from as the Jews did. But recall from Scripture, not many of the Jews received Jesus. Think about that. You can repent. You can have a national awakening, spiritual awakening. You can have a revival, but still fall far short of what God wanted in terms of a people who would receive him unto himself and a people over whom he would be a God, a royal priesthood that Scripture speaks of. So in this word repentance, I needed a little bit more help um, in, the, in the Greek because I'm not a Greek scholar. And, and, um, and so I turn to others um, who are Greek scholars. And it's interesting the way they describe it. Um, A.T. Robertson in the word pictures of the New Testament quotes a Greek scholar, Dr. John A. Brodus, and says, a noted Greek scholar, that the word repent is the worst translation in the New Testament. Amen. Amen. The English word for repent means to be sorry again. Honey, I cheated on you, but I'm sorry. Honey, I stole something, but I'm sorry. But then they do it again. John did not call on the people to be sorry, but to change, to think differently, to think afterwards. Literally, the word for repent, as used here, is not the word for sorry, but for the word to think afterwards. Meaning this, in light of the body of evidence that's before you, in light of the declarations that's before you, in light of what you know of who God is, in light of what God has done to you, both in prosperity but also in judgment, and in light of this coming king, after knowing all of these, change your mind. It's not about changing what you've done that you were, was wrong, that you regret it. That's always a part of it. But the bigger picture here that John was conveying is to prepare yourself by the change of attitude and the corresponding action then to support the right position of the mind as it relates to the one who is coming. Amen. It's always relational. And this is what it is for us as well. It's not just simply muttering a few words, but it is simply to say, I have a heart that I'm going to turn and get ready and establish and give to the Lord. Now that word, prepare and get ready, has another meaning. It does not mean a progressive getting readiness. There is a time for that. There's a time for continual spiritual maturity, progressive um, regeneration, progressive growth, sanctification in there. The word that is used here is not that. This is a word similar to when a husband and wife take a marital vow with each other. Naomi and I got married here in Calvary. We said we would love each other, we would honor each other for better or for worse, and that we would remain faithful to each other. It does not mean that out of 365 days of the year, and for one day out of each month, that 12 days out of year, I could remain unfaithful and still feel like I'm keeping my marriage vows. Would it? What if I got better? What if instead of 12 days out of the year, man, I got it down to three days out of the year, but those three days out of the year, I'm really living the life in the world, right? Am I being faithful? I'm improving, but I have not turned into, away from and into. This word that is used here says, essentially, draw a line in the sand. It's similar to when Joshua said, I set before you life and death. Choose you life that you may live. 
choose you this day whom you're going to serve. And this is the same with many of you. Many of you are thinking about Christianity, perhaps. You're wondering, well, maybe I will consider Christ. He's not a religion to be considered. He's a person to be submitted to. The biggest question that I asked many of my colleagues, I graduated from Yale University, and we would have all these wonderful debates. I was a philosophy major, no surprise that we had a lot of these debates within that circle. At the end of the day, with, irrespective of whatever arguments they would make, my simple question to them is this. Arguendo, a wonderful philosophical term, a wonderful legal term, for the sake of argument, arguendo, for the sake of argument, if Christ is who he says he is, if it is true that he came in the flesh, if it is true that he died for your sins, if it is true that he died, but the grave cannot contain him, but he rose again from the dead, and he is now seated at the right hand of the Father, and along the way he led captivity captives, if all of those things were true, would you even have an interest in knowing him? Would you want to know him? Because ultimately it comes down to that. It's relational. It's relational. And that's the repentance that is spoken of here. To bring some additional... I'm looking to make sure I don't pull a former pastor of ours. <laughs> um, another word that I just want to share, because I think there is a... There is a um, it helps bring it all together a bit. The word kingdom is used. The word kingdom is, occurs in about 119 passages in the, um, in the New Testament... And in the 119 passages, um, it's interesting, um, Alfred Edersheim, in his seminal work, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, noted, and he did the research, so I want to give credit where credit is due, he indicates that of the 119 passages that are surveyed in the New Testament, the word kingdom occurs, where it means the rule of God, 34 passages, which was manifested in Christ, 17 passages, is apparent in the church, 11 passages, gradually develop amidst hindrances, difficulties, challenges, 24 passages, is triumphant at the second coming, 12 passages, and finally perfected in the world to come, 31 passages. So wherever the kingdom of God is used in these 119 passages, John came to impress upon the people that it's really submission to the reign of God. It's the reign of God, and it's the submission to his authority in our hearts and our life. So Jesus will come and establish his kingdom on earth. Revelation, Daniel, several other chapters in, in Scripture speaks to that. But he rules now not to take territory in a form of land and geography, but to take territory in the form of the topography of our hearts. One heart at a time. One heart surrendered. One heart given over to the Lord. One heart being transformed in God. One heart that will allow the power of the Holy Spirit to come in and live through us and thereby advancing the kingdom. So when we think about Advent on the one hand, where we think about Christ coming again, but also the Christ child, the Emmanuel that was here. And when you think about, on the other hand, the other piece of it where Christ will return at some future time, we see these as huge peaks, as it were, in our Christian experiences. What we fail to connect and to see is that between these two peaks is a valley. There's a valley, and that valley is where John the Baptist ushered in, and that valley is where we are today. And in that valley, if I were to describe it thus, it would be that the first peak is kingdom inauguration. Christ coming in, into the scene. As an adult, in the person in the office of Messiah, where you had a forerunner, John, declaring him, similar to as they would do in other countries and other nations, 
in advance of a king's advance. And I will look at the second peak as kingdom triumph, kingdom conquest. This is where Christ comes again and establishes his millennial rule out of Jerusalem, fulfilling the Davidic promise and the covenant. The valley, I would consider it kingdom advance. We're in an era of kingdom advance. Kingdom's been inaugurated. The Holy Spirit's been given. The church is established. And Jesus says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. It's kingdom advance. In advance to his return. And this is the role we all are. And we have a part in. For those who call upon the name of the Lord. As we think about the Christ child. The question that I asked at the beginning. I pose it again. How do we see him? Cuddly, cute, for the season tucked away. Cuddly, cute, but still as a child. Grown up into a man. Maybe even into a ruler. How do we see him? How do we see him? And to help us with that, I think it's important that we start with a recognition of ourselves, of where we are and what we need, a recognition of who God is and what he offers and what he proposes. And following that recognition is to have that proper regard for God for who he is and what he's done for us. He is a holy God. We should now bring him down from where he is to make him common so he's more accessible to us. He's already made himself accessible to us through the person of his son Jesus and through the power of the Holy Spirit. And after we regard him properly, then we can properly repent. And that is to turn away, but also to turn towards and to turn into in reliance upon him and allow him to be ruler in our lives. And even to this day, as John the Baptist, the clearing call went forth back then. The clearing call still goes forward. The call for repentance still goes forward. Earlier I mentioned, and I'll close with this, how when all of the Jews were coming to John the Baptist, how they received the message of repentance, but they did not receive later the person of Jesus or understood what that really meant. That's why when Jesus inaugurated his preaching and his teaching, he didn't just speak about repent. He says, repent and believe. And others followed that up. Repent and believe, repent and believe, because the Jews only got one side of the coin just simply to repent. But they were not placing their trust into God and into the Messiah who was sent from God for their behalf and for our behalf as well. Amen? As we close in prayer, I'm going to ask that we just have a couple of minutes for each of you to just consider where you are how you would answer that question. Maybe it's a reaffirmation. Maybe it's just to say, Lord, thank you. Thank you for who you are. Maybe it's also, Lord, I'm not where I need to be. I want more of you. I want to come to you. I want you to be Lord in my life. And maybe it's for the very first time you're hearing this message. And this is different. I will say to you, I was born in Taiwan. I was surrounded by Buddhism. And I was, in my major at Yale, I've learned so many different religions, but no religion talks about someone who loves and someone who saves and someone who made the way like ours. And ours is not a religion. Ours is a living relationship with the king who can save. And I invite you to consider him and I invite you to invite him into your heart. So let's pray and we'll give you a couple of minutes to just set things even more right with the Lord and then I'll close in prayer.
Our Father in heaven, we just are in awe of your mercy, in awe of your love. We thank you so much, Lord God, that you don't treat us as we deserve, but you treat us according to your loving kindness. And this is how you treated the children of Israel, even as we're learning about it, and even how in the midst, Lord God, of judgment being poured out upon them, the tenderness, the kindness of your heart still say, but yet I will not forget you. I will make a way, and you made a way. And I thank you, Lord God, that you know us. You have not forgotten us. You are with us, and you continually make a way for us. And we just want to say we love you. And for each person here, Father, even as they prayed, we thank you, Lord God, that you hear prayers of those who are offered in sincerity up before you. And we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, that you would answer those prayers and that you would do an amazing work of restoration, amazing work, Lord God, of healing, and that you would provide your shalom, your peace, which passes all understanding and well-being upon them and their family and their lives. And that even as we look back, Lord God, on this year, we see your hands moving, but as we look forward to this coming year, that we would have a heart that's concentrated fully onto you. To you be the praise, to you be the glory. In your precious name we pray, amen.